Howdy. What's going on, Rick? How we doing today? Good. Good, good, good. How are you guys? Hold on, let me put the video on. There we go. Hey. Who's this guy? Man, well, look at Rick Clark. Oh, my gosh. You didn't tell me that I was going to be around famous Rick. Yeah, right. How you doing, big guy? I'm doing good. Good to see you, Rick. Good yeah. to see you guys. Jordan, yeah. good to see you. Yeah, good to see I'm, you. I'm Todd, even though it says Kevin, Ray. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Well, it says Kevin, but I'm actually Todd. There'll be another real Kevin on here in a minute. Oh, Todd. Yeah, where's Todd? Oh, there's Mitch. Oh, oh. Hey, and Kristen. Hey, there's a lot of people. Well, yeah, I, I think I overloaded the deck on this one. I'm going to hear about this later. It's. I didn't realize before. I thought it was just gonna be me and Ray, and then I looked at the, at the, uh, invite, and I'm like, well, shoot, Rick and Christian, and this is gonna be like a four-hour webinar, you know, right? Hey, listen, Mitchell, you're the one that told me to get Christian on there from a lender perspective, so that's on you, pal. Christian is a man, so you'll find out here. You'll find out, Christian. I don't think your audio is working though. And hi, Melissa. Hi, how are you? There you go. Good. Are you in the cab? I am. It's, I can shut off the tractor if there's too much background no. noise. No, that's just a first. That's awesome. Good. good. Well, that's my drill. So I stopped because I like I want to pay attention. So we'll just chill here. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate y'all being here. Kevin will be on in a second, I'm assuming. How you doing, Jordan? Oh, swag madness. Swag madness yeah. going on. People getting geared up for Christmas, so. That's what happens when you start a business. Yep. I wore this just for you, by the way, Jordan. That looks good. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. Is this everybody taught her? It is. I'm going to catch hell, but thanks for all being here. <laughs> what are we doing, guys? There's a the man who pays the bills. Mm -hmm. I'm a little late. Just uh, getting my daily ass kicking in the stock market there. I was being, I've been short for a few days, and uh, it hasn't been going so slow. Jordan's like, Dad, when are you going to quit uh, trying to do that here? But I don't know. We'll see. I can't learn my lessons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, not, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I guess we're just going to keep going higher and higher and higher. I, I, I guess these young kids got more money than, uh, than they know what to do with. Just keep plowing it in. So we're going to keep going higher. <laughs> I, I don't know. I wish I did. So the, the land of bubbles, everything's in a bubble. It seems like. Oh man. Is it ever. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. We got some, some we got young us. kids out here. Yeah, out here by our neck of the woods. I mean, I got some Jordan, you know, kids that my uh, son and daughter went to school with buying their first house. And, hell, you know, I'm paying three and $400,000. And it just seems like the houses are a piece of crap. You know, there's stuff that we couldn't give away 20 years ago, it felt like, and, or at least 15 years ago. And, man, it's, it's crazy what they got to pay up for. So I don't know. It's 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 gonna be tough for him. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, you you scars are the same way, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just making a comment. Used cars are the same way. Just buying a car or used cars are just thirty percent increase in used cars. Just the cost. Yeah, you know what's nuts? I bought a uh, just to give you guys another story, and I just told my wife. I said, "I'm I'm going to I'm selling this thing." I bought a new uh, GMC as a twenty five hundred Duramax. Oh, about two years ago. And I put 15,000, about 17,000 miles on it. Todd, you know the one. We drove it. We drive a new, we drive one about every three years. I trade it because I travel around and speak a lot. And Todd goes with me. So I used to always just buy that Duramax. I took it over to CarMax the other day because I'm like, I just want to see what they'll give me. I think the sticker on it uh, was 72 or three. And I think I paid 68 for it with my rebates and everything. They gave me 5,000 over sticker. <laughs> And I, I told my wife, I was like, I, I've never made money on a, a new car in my life. I've never even come close to making money. <laughs> you know, you lose, well, you lose 10, 20 grand when you take it off a lot. So I told her, I just, I sold it. And uh, Jordan says, what the hell are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to drive your new truck that you got around for a while until prices come down. Then I'm going to buy me a new one. <laughs> so I'm driving Jordan's new truck. He's like, are you kidding me? I said, you got another Jeep. You'll be fine. I'm driving that truck around. So I like it this way. This is nice. So it worked out well, Todd. You'd be proud of it. Well, I was going to ask Jesse. We won't get into it, but Jesse's looking to buy a $400,000 house, too. I'm like, you might want to hold off on that. So she thinks she I don't know. To. I don't know. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know if it's going to come back. You know, it's like everything, you know, higher cost of seed and fertilizer. It it. it, it People are a little reluctant to backpedal once they raise those prices. So I, you know, I don't know if we'll drift back too much, Todd. I mean, I told Jordan to just go ahead and buy something just because the dang interest rates are so cheap. I think Jordan's trying to buy, Jordan's trying to buy his first house and he locked in a rate at 3.25, I think on a 30 year. So I was like, you know, it's tough to beat that. Um, I mean, you can, I heard some guys in the twos, but I don't know what happens here. So I guess we can discuss as we, as we talk. So. Well, my parents, my parents, when they bought their first house back in the seventies, it was 18%, 18% Nuts. in the seventies. And now, you know, because you give, it's interesting advice because you've never seen the interest rates so low in your life. It's, I mean, okay. that's why people can afford a more of a home because the interest rates so low. Oh yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I just, my, my theory on it, just to give you guys my theory, cause I've been in real estate damn near my whole life. And we, we have a lot of buildings and I've done single family, multifamily. I don't think, I think this next generation of millennials and disease, I think the push from the demographics is going to be so strong. I don't think we have the supply pipeline to meet that demand for a long, long time, because I think we're lacking blue collar workers and trade association workers, whether it be plumbers, electricians, mm -hmm. roofers, concrete, uh, we, you know, a lot of my buddies uh, I grew up with have those trade businesses and they can't get anyone hired. Um, and so I, I suspect, you know, demand on the housing front, probably as far as there's just not going to be a lot of big spec building like we saw, uh, you know, in, in that uh, run up in 05 through 07, 08, we were doing a lot of spec home building as well. You know, there were a lot of banks loaning out. They'd let guys get 100, 200 spec homes out. And uh Hell, banks now I'd let you get two, three, four spec homes, you know, and you just don't have the crews, the available blue collar workers. So, Todd, I, I just suspect there's probably not going to be much supply. So, 
as far as the demand we're going to see come from this younger generation as they start to get older and have kids and, and kind of move out on their own. So I bet there ain't much of a break. I mean, there'll be some little pullbacks here and there, but uh, there's just probably not going to be a whole lot of supply out there. So we'll see how it plays out. Well, another yeah. thing that's interesting is that COVID in Missouri, you could buy a home with five or 10 acres, a nice ranch home for 10, 20 acres for 200, 300,000. Yeah. There's none. There's, there's none yeah. because people saw empty shelves at Walmart and that freaked people out. And, yeah. and, and it, there's a redistribution from the cities and a migration going into the countryside. And there should be because there's too many people in the yeah. city and more, we need more small farms. But we, I've seen that where in Missouri, you could buy land for real reasonable, but the land is doubled uh, easily. Yeah. Even a land that's kind of marginal like mine, pasture land has doubled. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, well, Todd, we want to kick things off and introduce everyone, or what do you want to do here? Absolutely. No, I'm very, Kevin knows that I'm very excited to do this. I think this program on regenerative agriculture is going to fit in with all of our tenants of trying to present new ways and looking at things and new opportunities to do that and hopefully in a profitable manner. So, uh, today we got a large crowd. I'll start out with, I'm going to go from the top down. I don't know what your screens look like, but uh, just do a quick intro on yourself and then we'll uh, we'll get the ball rolling. So Rick, let's start with you. Hey, good afternoon. I'm honored to be here today. Got quite the panel of folks to speak about regenerative farming. Um, Rick Clark, West Central Indiana, fifth gen generation farmer. And uh, we are just about to uh, transition the whole farm to organic and not only organic, but it is organic with no tillage. So we are what I would call the, the pinnacle of uh, regenerative farming. So uh, it's not for everybody, but there's plenty of room on the, on the, the spectrum here to be a regen farmer. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Great. Oh, you would have to put me after Rick. I mean, that's when you finish saying that, man, you can't even keep up with that right there. Uh, I'm a retired NRCS USDA employee. I'm here to help you because I work for the government, right? I, I put 30 years. I was a national soil health specialist for the last latter part of my years. I run a, I have a small ranch in Missouri. I, I, rare, I raise hair sheep, some uh, have South Pole cattle and some, um, and do bees, so uh, part of a regenerative system. So that's what I do. Mitchell. Hey everyone, I'm Mitchell Hora. I'm seventh generation on my family's farm in Southeast Iowa, uh, Washington kind of area. Uh, we've been working down the regen path for a long time, started no-tilling in, in 1978 and cover cropping in 2013, but still got a long way to go, um, long journey ahead. Uh, but we're seeing some really good things happen. Uh, we've focused heavily on data collection and, and handy testing and stuff to help to fuel that journey. Um, and I started a company called Continuum Ag in 2015. Um, and now we've built a software around managing for soil health and helping to digitize some of this, helping farmers and their consultants around the world uh, to be able to profit from improving their soil health and and scale up this message and gather some data so that we can showcase these outcomes up the supply chain and generate more opportunity for farmers and 
more opportunity to help them understand the logistics and economics of implementing these regen systems. Perfect. Melissa Nelson. Hey, so I wear three hats. Uh, my name is Melissa Nelson. I am located in central Kansas. The first is I'm a research scientist. Uh, I own my own crop research facility. So I work with developmental chemicals, varieties, genetic testing, et cetera, before it gets to that commercial level and gets submitted to the EPA. Uh, the second hat I wear is I help my husband and my brother-in-law on their fourth generation farm. Uh, we run no-till, cover crops. We've got a background in yard, uh, very involved in all facets of agriculture on that front. And then the third hat I wear is Southland Industrial Hemp. Uh, we're big into fiber and grain for the sustainability purposes, the regenerative purposes of growing. So I work with growers all over the Midwest as they contract and bring fiber bales into our hemp processing facility. Awesome. Christian Rabobank. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, Kevin. Um, like I, I mentioned, or I was trying to mention before, before I got a landline so I can actually talk to you guys. Um, I came here because uh, Mitchell, uh, wherever Mitchell is, it's a great conversation to have. So, um, so I applaud you guys for inviting him to this panel. So my name is Christian Barkin. I lead sustainability at the rural side of Rabobank or Rabo Agri Finance in North America. Uh, one of the main things that we do or try to do with engaging our farmers on advancing the sustainability uh, effort for, for agriculture is to pilot a carbon uh, credit, carbon sequestration program, program where we actually partner with uh, Mitchell's organization, Continuum Mag, And uh, we started with five farmers implementing uh, a variety of regenerative agricultural practices that were actually tailored for their operation based on the um, experience that Mitchell and his team had. And uh, we're going through the first iteration of that. We're hoping to expand that pilot to uh, double the amount of clients. So we're going to go from five to 10 and um, double the amount of acreage to about 25,000 acres uh, over the next nine months. And uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you all. Appreciate it. And Ray, don't get up anymore. I got to ask you the next question. <laughs> Now, I'd just like to start with a, with a uh, from the philosophical standpoint, my time here and what I've learned, uh, there's just a huge lack of understanding in the, uh, what Regen Ag is and the many definitions. And then uh, on top of that, many questions about, you know, who is it for, what's right for it. So I'd like to throw it out there. I'm going to start with Ray and then everybody get a chance to answer uh, if you have something to add on to that. But to Ray, I mean, just for the sake of the conversation, people listening, looking to make a change, when we say regenerative ag, what are we speaking about exactly? It, I have, this is my own, I think everybody has kind of a different definition, but this is my definition after many years. I call it regenerative, regenerative agriculture is really about a renewal of mind. Regeneration means renewal. And the natural ecosystem always continues to renew itself. And when I say regenerative agriculture is about facilitating agriculture 
with a renewal of your mind, the way you look at the natural system and knowing that the goal is to emulate and to mimic nature. That was always really the true design that we follow the design, the principles, the patterns, the architecture of the natural system. So regeneration, regenerative agriculture, because our bodies regenerate all the time, nature does the same thing. So to me, it's a, and it really starts with renewing the way you look at things, renew of heart and mind. That's my definition of regenerative agriculture. Rick, you want to add? Yes, I do. Uh, Thanks, Ray. That was great. Todd and and all the gang there at Ban Trump, I'm I'm pleased that you've called this a regenerative panel and not a sustainable panel because there's a big difference. Sustainable, I don't care much for that word. It means stay the same. We're not staying the same. We are regenerating the soil, raised exactly right. It all starts with change is good and change is hard. So once we can get uh, and, and, and guys, we're not here to, to put down the way anybody farms or to offend anybody. We're only trying to add another piece into their arsenal of something that might help deflect some input costs or, or start building soil health. But my definition of regenerative is you have to apply the six principles of soil health. That has to be applied. And Can you share those, right? I'm going to let Ray share those because Ray knows those way better than I do. And then I'll come back. Go ahead, Ray. Give the six principles of soil health. Uh, the principles are the ones that when we went all over the country, they were very evident in, in nature. And we added one just recently, and it was called the first one. And the most important one is context. Understand ecological, social, cultural and the spiritual context of the human being, because they're the ones that impact the soil and change everything, because we're intimately connected. We lost our place because we didn't understand context. So when I work with a farmer, we have to understand their ecological context, with the farm, their economic, their social context, their cultural. The problem is we separate the farm from, from the ecology, and that was a really bad thing to do. Number two, keep the soil covered all the time. Have a living skin, diversity, diversity, reduce chemical, physical, and biological disturbance. And the last one, and very key, nature doesn't farm without animals. Integration of animals in the natural system. Notice what they all are. It's really about nature's patterns. And these are nature's patterns and how it, how it does business. So, and again, we added the last one. The first one is called context. So those are the six principles we talk about. Yeah, and, and to add to that, um, we are trying to maximize or minimize each of Like when Ray says minimal disturbance, we've gone all the way to no disturbance of soil. We've eliminated all chemistry, all tillage. And what we're seeing is, I know this seems crazy, guys, but we are now heading into year eight of not applying any, any fertilizers on our farm. So we are saving massive amounts of money on inputs. And you're seeing a progression of the weed cycle. That's the number one question. What about all your weeds, Rick? Well, at the beginning, it's broadleaves. Then the broadleaves run their, their pattern out. Then it becomes grasses. Then you move out of the grasses. And then shrubs would be next. And then trees. Now, we're not going to go that to that point. 
but that's the progression and it is real. So I guess I haven't really answered your question of what my definition is, but it's a combination of all of these things that require the six principles of soil health, being a good steward of the land and being conservation minded. So, um, and, and by the way, Todd, I'm, I'm just about ready to let Mitchell fly here, but by the way, this is part of the problem with the industry right now. There is no definition. We're all running on 25 different definitions. So how can we be heading for the same goal if we can't get together and get to get that one definition figured out? So that, that needs to become a project for somebody. So take her away, Mitchell. I do not need to be the one who defines it. Uh, but, but when I, I try to boil it down and my definition of regenerative ag is that it's a continual implementation upon the principles of soil health. So you've got to have all, you've got to be moving the needle towards all those. And that's why I say on our farm, we're not there. We have, we have a lot to learn and we've been on this journey for, like I said, I mean, on a no-till standpoint and, and looking at conservation is all it really was at that point. Soil health wasn't a thing. Regenerative ag wasn't a thing carbon credits and all this stuff that wasn't a thing in in the late 70s you know they were doing it because they knew they had to had to conserve that that soil um so to me like i said it boils down to it's a continual implementation upon the principles of soil health uh you have to continue to iterate every year is going to be different um but the principles are still the same and uh, you have to continue to push and understand to raise point your context in that every farm is going to be different and every year uh, might look a little bit different. Um, so, but as long as you're continuing to focus on that and continuing to move in the right direction, um, I believe that you are being a regenerative farmer, um, but there is no, uh, there's no there. There's no, we are at that standpoint. I don't think, I, at least, at least nobody's been able to reach it yet. And we'll see, maybe Rick and, or Gabe or somebody will get there at some point, but but I think uh, I've heard both of them say that they, they know they're not quite there yet. But it's fair to say that in the process of our conversation, it's all about the six principles. I mean, it's, you're doing some level of those or some choice of those as you make the journey. Because you used a couple of key words, journey, it's not a destination, and principles, it's not a prescription. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion on that. Yeah, and, and I think the principles, my observation at least, is that the farmers are understanding the principles. They, they've heard about it. They, un, they know what these concepts are. They've, they've heard about these things or they're, they're reading about it in the magazines. You can't really look anywhere without hearing about cover crops and soil health and stuff like it's really, it's a, a thing now, but I think what they don't understand to raise point is the context of what does it mean for their farm and how do they take those principles and get creative to implement them? And cause I say that the principles I believe can be implemented everywhere and once in a while, I still hear, I was, I was at an event, well, Christian and I were together at an event out in Kansas, um, in Manhattan, Kansas here a couple of weeks ago. And one of the guys presenting said, yeah, you know, you want to do no-till, but there's some places where no-till doesn't work. And I didn't want to call him out in front of the whole group. But my question was going to be, show me, show, I, I, I would love to hear where it doesn't work because I've, I'm yet to see where no-till doesn't work. Um, now it might look a little different. You might have to be more creative in certain areas. Um, and you, and what I found is you can't just push on one lever of the principles without pushing and pulling on some of the other levers as well. So, so maybe to their context, they haven't understood how to get it to work, but just part of my soapbox. Kevin, can I add something to that? 
if you don't mind. Um, so, I mean, look at the words that we're using, regenerative agriculture. Pretty much a walk back. We gotta look, and, and Mitchell is great at doing that. I mean, we, we've been to a few of our clients and I experienced that, that firsthand. For a long time, we, we've used agriculture uh, and agricultural practices with a continuously more, um, I would say, refined cocktail of chemical ingredients that would force the land to give us something because it's depleted, depleted and continuously depleted. So by adding, it's almost like going to a hospital and, you know, you start taking a certain medication that has a certain side effect and you try to take another medication to fix that side effect and that goes down to another issue and so on and you end up with a bunch of medications that at the end of the day doesn't fix anything and just takes away maybe the, um, you know, just the symptoms, but it doesn't cure anything. So that's how it is with agriculture. We've done, we've gone to a point where, if you look at the natural state of soil, it's so depleted of everything, and we got to add everything to it to actually make it work. So we generate from there and put it back to where it was 30, 40 years ago, where we started with. And and Mitchell has this phenomenal, uh, just exemplifying that by taking a shovel and going to a a buffer belt or a marginal land that has been farmed, digging for, you know, the soil and the, the, the quality of that soil and the biological, you know, um, activity in the soil and the color and the smell of that soil. And then he goes to the field where we actually use or continue to farm and compares the two. And you can see the difference right away. So regenerative agriculture puts the soil back to where it was supposed to be so we can actually farm it in a way where the natural ingredients are actually doing the job for us rather than us having to pile up a whole bunch of stuff Christian, on top of it. Christian, I learned, I learned yeah. that tactic from Ray. <laughs> when Ray and I were down in Iowa early this year, he took these farmers out and we looked at the edge of the field where there was a grass versus in the field. And I was like, boom, that was huge. And then, yeah, Ray, I showed these guys as we were going around and showing these farmers, they're like, no, it can't work here. There's no carbon. It's not going to be fixed. And then I showed them right here, like, where all the principles are implemented right on the edge of the field. It was all there and the carbon was there and you I could, all there. And you could so, smell it. The best part was we were smelling the, the soil and stuff. It was awesome. Anyway, but I, I learned, I'm so proud of you. I'm, I'm so proud of you, Mitchell. I take notes once in a while, Ray. Thank you for that uh, tip. Ray. So anyway, uh, everything that we talked about is they're actually how to do it. So practices that you put in place to actually get there, but the, uh, the uh, definition is put it back to where it used to be. Make the soil look like the natural state of soil that we're supposed to farm. And there are ways to get there. And carbon just happens to be one of the ingredients that, that are going to help us to get there. By the way, uh, I agree that there is confusion out there. Uh, I would have to say it's the same with sustainability. So those people use sustainable as a finite um, threshold or a line. There is no such thing. There is no sustainable. There will never, ever, ever be any sustainable. It's a continuous improvement journey uh, that that looks at uh, employing innovation and optimization and efficiencies 
for that purpose of continuous improvement and doing more with less so we can actually feed the whole bunch of people with less input. So so that's where the confusion come in and uh, a lot of people associated with the black and white thing rather than continuous improvement over time. And don't forget that sustainability actually includes as much social and economics as uh, it includes environmental. Melissa, would you like to add anything? Well, in that case, and you know, Mitchell, you touched on a couple of things that I run into all the time that I mean, Ray, and you, you, you're, I'd like you to start by answering this. You know, can't, doesn't work here. I was talking to a major retailer, ag retailer co-op up in the, in the Red River Valley. Oh, we can't do that up there, man, our clay soil. We, you know, we got to till it up here and we got to continually till. So it's too dry. It's too wet. I don't get enough moisture. My, my soil is just, because people are looking for changes now in this environment, especially, can you tell us those major obstacles that you hear? Because you're out on the front lines every day, and just real quickly, kind of run through, and uh, it, we'll get to the point of telling people where they can get the help. But I mean, what are these major things that are the misconceptions and misunderstandings that people don't even give it a second look for? One of the Todd, the real the reality is, the biggest obstacle on any farm and ranch is the human mind. It's the mindset. It's years and years we have been indoctrinated from our, from our schools, from our universities, from our farms, from our grandparents, our rancher, I mean, our, our parents. The true hardcore reality, a majority of the people walk away, do not understand the soil's alive, just like them. It is just, it is the most diverse ecosystem on the planet. They don't believe it's alive. I didn't. They're still teaching kids in school. It's not alive. Once you understand it's alive, everything changes. If you don't even have that basic understanding, Todd, I can't help you. I, I really can't help you. It really starts there. And that's the biggest issue throughout this country. We don't think that it's alive. And that's a problem. So all those categories, it's too dry, not enough, uh, it's too thick. Those, I'll fall in the category, but just, I'm used to doing it this way. Don't need to look, don't need to look somewhere else. Well, let me jump in a minute on that. I, I think before you guys, you know, I, I, I would strongly disagree. I mean, people don't base, base decisions on their families based off of whether they believe the soil's alive or not alive or science or any of that. I mean, why don't you get up every day and do something different? There, there's different ways to, I mean, you guys have been successful at this, but you guys are willing to take the risk to go do this. And what I find with all of the businesses I invest in and all of the businesses, when your lifestyle revolves around it in your family and your family's family and their kids and your grandkids and everyone, shit. You don't want to take those types of risk. Nobody's willing to get out there and take that kind of risk to wreck five, seven generations in Mitchell's case. Uh, you know, a conventional farmer, and I know what you guys are saying, they've been doing it this way and their daddy's been doing it this way and his daddy. Well, I'm promising you, no one wants to run the wheels off the wagon. And now all of a sudden your entire life is wrecked. That's the problem. That is the problem. There is no guarantee or safety net all of this sounds good in theory, and I talk to plenty of people, and I, I think they would love to maybe try it. But, you know, lots of people would love to try lots of different businesses, but they just simply because they don't want to risk 
losing their family, losing their lifestyle, losing whatever they deem to be. I love what Ray says. That context is so important. Uh, you know, if you're starting off from zero and you're a new farmer, by all means, this sounds awesome. This sounds great. I can either choose to pour a bunch of chemicals out and, and do till, or I can go with these guys and what they're telling me works and, you know, is, is awesome for my soil. But when you're in and you're 10,000, 20,000 acres in and you got a $7 million line of credit at the bank and you've got everything leveraged to the hill, you're not going to listen to this podcast and be like, oh, shit, great idea. I think I'll go out and turn everything around tomorrow and just flip this and uh, risk my kids, my family and everything we've worked for. <laughs> They're not gonna, nobody's going to do that. That's, that's, that's unrealistic. That's the thing. I think people are too extreme in this and just by the yeah. verbiage that they use because, you know, right. Ray was over there saying, I can't help you if you don't think that's a way. And I'm over here as a farmer with my line of credit with my thousands of acres and I'm going to say, okay, this year I'm going to implement this and next year right. I'm going to implement. Like it's, it's going to take us a long time to get where you know, someone that just went full tilt regenerative ag, and it's not that they're not working towards it, but it's going to be a slower process because you economically can't just risk everything and do that. So I agree. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, Melissa. And I've heard Rick uh, tell me that before, like, look, you got to start somewhere and you got to start taking small steps and you got to get committed to the program. Hell, it's like me trying to lose weight. I mean, I, I, you got to start and you got to try to get committed somewhere in the damn thing and, and fight the good fight. And I think what Ray and, and a lot of people are saying, I mean, I think everyone wants to be on that team and go for it. Uh, I think just a lot of people are uncertain, like, how do I transition? Where do I make small steps? How do those small steps turn into first downs and eventually touchdowns and we transition over? So you know, Todd, I think that's a big, big question. How do you how? Because everyone's always the go to is, oh, they're doing it in a garden. They're not doing it on 5000 acres or 10,000, you know, and then and if we are doing it at scale, how, how do guys go about transitioning? And I think a lot of folks are interested in that. You know, what do you what you guys do? What what all of you do? Did you start as a uh, you know, how did you transition into it? Melissa, how'd you go? Well, you know, we just started by diversifying our farm. Uh, I got really involved in 2019 when hemp became available in Kansas to grow uh, because it is a soil remediator. And we already were using uh, cover crops on our farm. We were already using those mixes. Like, it's been a progression over time for us. We got rid of the heavy discs. You know, we moved to a vertical tillage. And then we eventually moved away from that. And now we're all no-till. So it's been a very long process because, again, you've got to trade in equipment. To me, it's an economical thing. Like, yes, every farmer understands the importance of carrying on their land to the next generation, and I think they want to do that. Um, but it's going to be a slower process. Well, I, let me, let me I say this. I want to add something here. Yeah, go ahead, Ray. Go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. Uh, well, guys, because um, I want to go back to what Kevin's Look, and, and what Melissa said, I totally get it. We, it's really a function of the person's personality when you're dealing with this. But let me give you an example. Kevin said, well, nobody's going to take that kind of risk. Well, actually, Mark Ginson did. He came to listen to me talk for one hour. He saw the demonstrations. He changed 20,000 acres. 
20,000 acres. He did 1,000 acres first, and he moved 1,000 acres first. And never do we advocate that you do this on the whole farm. It's, it takes a lot of thinking. But this gentleman at 20,000 acres converted with a one-hour, two-hour workshop. Changed everything the way. Why did he do that? You know what he told me? He says, Ray, all we did is got to get on the sprayer. I was going to quit. Let's just be brutally honest. Guys that size are making 10 to $20 an acre. Barely making it. They got all this equipment. Everybody's making money on them. All the equipment, all the chemicals, everybody's making the money on them. But they're not making all the money. And, the, and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're not making it. So why did he change? He changed because he finally understood he didn't understand the system. And he changed 20,000 acres. Case another point. John in South Carolina, 71-year-old, heard a one-hour, two-hour presentation I gave. Completely changed. Sold all the equipment. He was ready. I think we forget you have, the recipient has to be ready. This has nothing to do. I just dropped seed. You cannot change people. And, 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 and I understand, Kevin and Melissa, I, I get it. People are afraid, and rightly so. There's a lot of fear in it. But you have to be ready, too. A lot of this, I think, you know, right to, to your point and Kevin to yours, that the it's it boils back to that the cost or the that the pain of staying the same has to be more than the pain of, of change. And to the stories Ray was sharing there, the pain of staying the same was astronomical for these guys. And that's where a lot of folks are right now, especially with nitrogen going to be, you know, just about a dollar a unit. And it's going to be painful. Um, and it already is for these guys. And luckily, the the commodity prices are there to help to, to overcome some of that and be able to continue to play this small margin game. But um, what I'm seeing here now, I'm in an area where there's, you know, we have super high adoption here. So there's a lot of farmers that have been doing it for a long time. They've been doing it with no outside dollars coming into it. They've been doing it because economically it's much better for them and they're making more money and they're controlling their profits and they have, they have more freedom to be able to do what they want to do on their, on their operation and farm the way that they want to farm uh, because they have less people to answer to. And now I'm seeing some of the later adopters coming saying, Hey, I've been doing it the same way for a long, long time. I'm seeing my neighbors doing this stuff and they're expanding and they're the ones that are buying new farms. They're the ones that are growing their operations. Maybe I should try some of that. And, and the, their pain of staying the same is starting to get to the point where it's less than the, than the pain of change. But then they're coming to us saying, well, Hey, how do I get there? How do I start? What are some of those tactics on how do I get started to be able to continue to, to pull back starting small and then scaling it up from there. But I had one of my guys in that scenario, he's one of the most, one of the main conventional tillage guys in the area came to us, um, you know, last fall saying, Hey, I want to, you know, I've got this side Hill. I'm going to no till plant green cereal rye ahead of soybeans. I'm like, great. That's ideal starting spot. Early this spring, he was like, he had us out there. He's like, my beans look terrible. I'm going to replant. This is not the way that it needs to be. And we walked him through, showed him how to do stand counts in a system like this. It's drilled. looks different than his 30 inch rows on black dirt. And he just called me last week and he goes, Hey, I'm scaling up doing like three X the cover crop acres here next year, because those are my best beans I've ever had. And he was going to replant them. It's a different part of that mindset that it looks different. He's seeing, okay, this is working for all these other people, getting the right advice, trying it out on his farm. And now he's scaling because, because he's having success and, and has a better crop with less input going into it and more freedom 
to invest in this family operation? Well, I think in regard to that, a support system is really important. Um, and the, what I'm going to reference this to is me supporting the growers that are starting hemp. Like we've seen, you know, how to do those being found or what to expect, because yeah, sometimes a standard hemp can look pretty gnarly, but by the end of the season, it's going to rebound and it's going to be okay. But I get so many calls a week just saying, are you sure this is right? Like, are you sure I shouldn't just plow this under or, you know, whatever they spray it, whatever their farming operation is. And I'm like, no, just stay the course. You can do this. Like it's supposed to look like that. So I think maybe providing those farmers that are interested, like I know there's support systems out there, but are they more readily available to, you know, like Mitchell, you sound like a great resource in your area, but not all areas have that. Yeah, and I mean, from from experience, I can tell you guys that the example that Jay mentioned of uh, switching 20,000 acres all of a sudden to something is pretty out there. I mean, it's very courageous. Most of the clients uh, that we have and we've had discussions with want to do it on a much smaller scale basis, which is fine as long as they can see the benefits. And the benefits have to sh show pretty quickly, right? So you can go for a period of time on, you know, implementing these practices, but the expectation is that by the third, fourth year, you would start seeing a improved in yield and maybe a quantification of uh, reduced farm inputs. Now, I think the most radical thing that I've heard uh, from uh, a, a uh, farmer recently was that he was going bankrupt. He basically had no money to pay for farm inputs anymore. And he was like, I gotta do something or otherwise I'm gonna die. I'm gonna have to sell everything. And that triggered that uh, radical change. And five years later, he was like super successful and making you know a ton of money out of it. But um, yeah, I, I think I think the approach has to be tailored per uh, the realities of the operation of every farmer. So there is not one size fits all for everybody. And that's where expertise like Mitchell's come, comes in and, and others in area, other areas of the country. And secondly, start with something that you're comfortable with. Well, let me, let me add this, if I may, because I've listened to Kevin uh, in five years and uh, his business acumen is second to none in my opinion, but he said to me, day one, you know, uh, an object in motion is going to stay in motion until it's knocked off. That trajectory and Ray and Rick, it's been my experience as I've dived into this subject that most of the people that have done this thing, Gabe Brown being the leader, everyone had a tragic experience that kind of knocked them off. And it's the same thing with Christmas deal. So these people, unfortunately, this has been the deal. And Kevin kind of jumped ahead and got, got ahead of my question list of stuff, but he was right. But that risk that he was talking about, in my opinion, that is part of the misunderstanding that is that is the whole regen ag moving into the regen ag deal because. Kristen, you just said four to five years. I mean, I guarantee you, Ray could sit there and tell you examples of in year one, year two, you're profitable, your soil health's up, which is now going to benefit carbon. Ray, is that correct? Ray, is that, I mean, that, those are not untrue statements, yeah. right? I mean, you can see it don't take four or five years. That's one of the misconceptions I wanted to overcome. Well, uh, I think people, case, case in point, uh, people said, well, how long does it take? I get that question all the time and you know what i tell todd i said it's a function of you how committed are you how committed are you look at ray <clears throat> clark 
how quickly he changed his operation. Look, people don't understand. The moment you go to no-till, you reduce inputs of fuel by 66% right off the top of the bat. I can cut you off fertilizer by 20% by using the Haney test right away. We're over-fertilizing by 50-fold, I mean by a, a double in some cases. We're over Our soil tests were designed on the wrong premise. Those soil tests in the 1900s were all built on the design on the wrong premise. So they're way off. So regenerative agriculture, you can get uh, a financial uh, payback right away. And so I think people are misunderstanding um, that it's going to cost you more of that. Well, that's not the case. <clears throat> Would you agree, Rick? Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And and Kevin, I'd like to, um, you know, you mentioned pretty strong there that that you've got these operations you deal with that are large acres. They can't they can't even dream of it. Well, we were there one day. We were some of the worst soil destructors of the county. We we sprayed all the chemicals. We did everything there was to do in the handbook. We don't do any of that stuff now. So um, I think it's very, everyone's brought the, the, the underlying theme here of this part of this discussion is the support. It's, it's great. You could have Ray come in, you could have Mitchell, you could have whoever you want to come in and speak and charge that whole group up, but then they walk out the door, get on the plane and fly home. You've got to have that group that's going to say, okay, Farmer Brown, this is what you're going to do. You thought you were going to plant your beans in the riot three foot tall, but Mother Nature rained for three weeks. It's now six feet tall. This is what we're going to do. That's that's what's missing there to comfort to comfort these folks. And and Kevin, you're exactly right. If you can get yourself into a world of hurt here, if you're not careful with with the the concepts we're talking about, I mean we plant everything into a green growing living cover crop and we're terminating it mechanically so um it it can be done but yes we have to take baby steps we got to go slow and i always say that it's very important that the first time a farmer tries this they have to have success because if they don't i don't think they'll come back and that's that's the fear you're talking about, Kevin, right there. Well, I totally agree. Bouncing off the trying stuff for Rick, Mitchell, and Melissa. I mean, did did you guys first try this? Did you just go into this saying, I try I'm gonna try hundred acres, or did you have a three, a four, a five year plan? Like I'm gonna stick this out, I'm gonna stay committed. I'm yeah, we we uh we tried um it would have been like fall of twenty fifteen going into twenty sixteen, I believe, um is what it would have been that uh, dad tried cover crop at a larger scale, about a hundred acres or so on the first time. And we're remember about 700 acre farm. So um, still small enough scale for us. That first year we lost a hundred dollars an acre and uh, about 20, 20 bushel yield. And, um, and plus the other costs, the inputs and stuff like that. Um, and the yields there, um, we, the corn looked terrible. We had a complete disaster, planted green, didn't get it killed the right way. Didn't change our fertility management. Didn't set up the planter any different, planted way too heavy. Didn't understand carbon to nitrogen ratio, planted bit corn into this big tall cereal rye without trying to change anything else. Completely failed Did 245 bushel corn. If we would add the whole field that way, it would have been our best yields ever. And, uh, but right next to it was our no-till stuff that did 265. 
um, that just didn't have the cover. So the, so yeah, I said we lost a hundred bushel or a hundred dollars an acre, which was true in that trial. Um, but overall we knew that, okay, we screwed some things up. We didn't understand the principles yet. We didn't understand that network. We didn't have that. I was still up at Iowa state. Dad was at home trying this stuff out um, because he had some other people that were saying, Hey, you should give this a go. We identified what we did wrong. We got the help that we needed. And now we're going well above and beyond that. Some of our stuff now are relay crop kind of things. We're profiting an extra $200 profit bottom line because of some of these things we're doing now. And um, so in year one, we just had to identify what we were doing wrong. And now what we see is now all the farms we transition. Yeah. We see soil health improvements in year one, understanding you need to know what you're looking for and that you need to have somebody that can help you that can hold your hand, that can, that is their local, um, that can help you to understand how to avoid those issues. Um, Cause yeah, we had a big disaster and now are able to tell that story and help other people to avoid that disaster for them. And it, it, that's what this is all about. This is a community. That's what I think is so cool about all this and, and this conversation stuff is the regenerative movement is led by farmers and that's where it's got to stay. It's the farmers and that group of people that have been doing this for a really long time that built community around this. And now there's a lot of, of folks that want to come to the table. And, and I think it's great. And like Robo Bank, obviously one of them. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people that are saying, hey, we need more of this. But really what it is, we need more community. We need more farmers working together. We need more farmer empowerment um, to be able to understand uh, that there's a, a path forward here that is probably going to end up being mandated um, at some point. And if not mandated, at least demanded um, on behalf of the consumer. So um, do you think it's a little limited by, and I'm just going to generalize this, but like farmer pride, you know, it's, it's the biggest form of peer pressure. If someone gets out the planter, you're like, shit, it's, even though it's March 15th, we should be out there too. You know, if that yield, that drop, do you think that's what's holding some of the farmers back? Um, 100%. It's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's the, it's the, uh, that yield is still the main and the only metric of the outcome. And that's where like Rick's side, Rick doesn't even care about yield at all. Um, you know, and, and for our farm, like yield is still fairly important for us because we're still in a conventional system. We're not all the way there yet. And, and in order to, uh, to be able to get this work, I've still got to be able to have a balance there that we are along the journey where we've been able to we've decreased our synthetic fertilizer by 45%. That's going to put a lot of dollars in our pocket right off the bat here for this next year. So, and we're still maintaining record yield. Um, so we're not seeing the yield decreases and able to cut our other inputs and put more dollars in our pocket. Kevin, I'm going to tell you right now that if, if you're the group of farmers that you touch, which is very big, you, you've got a big gathering if you gave that group the right information, the right teaching, the right care, every single one of those folks could farm in some fashion of this way. And I guarantee that. Now, the, the problem here is everything around a farmer is based on yield. Their success is all about yield. I mean, Mitchell mentioned it. Everyone in this conversation has mentioned it. So it's not about yield. It's about return on your investment. That's what it's about. I mean, uh, if you can reduce inputs and, and gain 
um, soil health and stability and aggregate stability and water infiltration rates and water holding capacity and all of these things become pluses. It's way beyond what we're just talking about here. Let's think about the municipalities that need clean drinking water for their towns. It all comes from back from the farmer as well. And these things have to be thought of more. And I'm telling you, with the right group of people, uh, I think every acre of soybeans in the country should be planted in the soil right, every acre. Because that is a, that is a no-brainer, soybeans and cereal rye. Hey, Todd, let me, let me. What was that? What was it? Sorry. I said, do you think maybe it's how it's presented? Like, for instance, you know, my farming friends out in western Kansas. So present it. They have limited water out there. Their wells literally run dry. So maybe you don't even touch on soil health. You say, hey, you can reduce water and because that's what they care about. I mean, yes, they care about the soil, but the water is their immediate problem. So yeah. maybe it's how you present it to the groups to maybe catch more traction for their area. Yeah, you're exactly right. And 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 Ray can Ray can come in right behind me on this one. But if you're in an arid environment like that, you need multiple species growing, not single one, two, threes. You need 10, 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, Ray had huge success south of the border in an extreme arid environment, and you had multiple species growing. But Melissa, you're right. Sometimes we've got to uh, tailor the message toward what they want to hear, not what we think they want to hear. I, I don't think there's any debate on which way is better. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's, I don't hear a lot of people making that debate. Um, I think we have the perspective on each side is, is, in my opinion, crazily skewed. I argue this with Todd constantly. There's been several great points brought up, uh, you know, uh, uh, like uh, Robbo, you know, making the comment, well, the person was next to bankruptcy and then switched. Well, obviously, obviously, if you're next to bankruptcy, you're going to switch and look for another alternative. What I'm trying to say is simply this. If I take Rick or Ray or whoever, and I say, okay, you're the CEO of Ford now. You're the CEO of uh, Montgomery Wards. You're the CEO of Sears. Or you were born in that lineage. Let's say you were born a Ford and you're the fourth generation to run the company. <laughs> yeah, you see Tesla out here and I come talk to you and say, hey, yeah, we're going to go all electric pretty soon. We're going to, yeah, you're going to be like, get the hell out of here. I don't want to hear it. I, I, it's not, that's not my, that's not where I'm going. So look how difficult, look at what I'm trying to say is this. Where people go is we have the talk about regenerative ag. They don't necessarily understand it. They don't really like it because they see it as different. So they discount it and they don't want to deal with it. And they put up big walls and big barriers about it and say, well, it can't work on my farm. It can't work out here. It can't work at scale because it's just different. They've been born to Ford. They, they don't want to see that this, this is coming. I think the argument is this. Do we all collectively agree that at one point down the road, our kids' kids, government is going to pressure this and it's going to continue to pressure this climate change and you're we're going to have to change there's not a question i think rick and ray and mitchell and melissa and all you got you guys are the forerunners and mitchell said one of the most important things that i always tell my kids 
The guy that fails first or the girl that fails first and fails the most wins the race. Mitchell, you said you failed early. You got smoked first year, but you did it and you learned about it and you overcame it and you beat the learning curve. Rick, I know you've said you've had to battle some steep learning curves. Well, all I'm saying is you guys are way ahead of the race. And for the people that want to be stubborn and drag their feet because they're running forward or, I mean, you're going to be behind the curve. I am totally in agreement. You're going to be behind the curve. So the quicker you can fail and just bite the bullet, if you believe that the government is going to continue to push this. And just like Melissa said, I got friends in Southwest Kansas. Water's an issue. If you don't want to look at water conservation tactics or techniques, well, you might as well find an exit strategy because I suspect your grandkids probably aren't going to be able to operate on that farm 50 years from now. So but the big opportunity uh, is that we, we failed so that the other folks now don't have to. And we can show them, you. here's how we overcome it so that they can have better right. success. But again, we have to tell that story. We're trying to build all these case studies and show them the data and show them the path so that they can, if they're ready for it, that we can get them all the tools that they need. There's more available now than ever before. Um, and, and people willing to share that story and to help uh, with no expectation. Yeah, but Mitchell you, Mitchell, you go back and look through all history. I mean, I trade on the exchange. I mean, I've invested in all kinds of companies across many sectors. Hell, you don't even have, I mean, 80% of any company that's ever gone public on New York Stock Exchange is gone, dead, goodbye. Poof, see you later. They can't make it it's, uh, for an extended period of time. So, what I'm saying is, first and foremost, people have to understand, the most, some of those brilliant CEOs in the world I've watched not be able to pivot a company and not look be at, able to look turn. Look at the amount of land that's on the market right now. That's happening right now. Yeah. No, I agree. So it's like, you know, it isn't that you don't, that, that people, you know, when people start to feel stupid or feel they don't know anything, they start to bull up and then want to battle and argue and all that jazz. I don't think that's at all the case here. I think the folks on the panel have gone out and uh, kind of seen where they believe things are going to head and they failed quickly and failed and, and overcome a lot. And, um, you know, I, I'm in your guys' camp. I think that's where we're headed. I really do. And how do we get people to convert? I don't know. I think it's going to be hard. You know, like I said, people got to take a lot of risk. It's going to be scary. There's, luckily, there's you guys out there who <laughs> have gotten skinned up and busted up a few times. You can maybe help them avoid some pitfalls, but it isn't going to be easy and it's certainly going to be scary. And uh, when people are scared, I mean, you know, they pull up. So I just like to say, you know, think of it as if you were having to manage a Ford or a GM or a Sears or Montgomery wards. And, you know, you've watched them all get kind of really smoked as they try to transition and pivot this thing. So I, you know, it, it's, it's going to be tough guys. I, I'm on board with that. So. How do we take the fear away, Kevin? Because that's the biggest thing that I, I think most of the farmers that I've talked to uh, have. How do, how do we take the fear away that by implementing all the stuff that they haven't been trained on, that seems counterproductive to everything that they know about agriculture and the way they farm for the last 20 years, it's actually going to result into something good and it's not going to kill their crop. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. But a little bit of the issue, I think, too, if you guys might agree, I mean, even though farmers are running multi-million dollar businesses, um, they don't, they haven't been armed with a lot of business acumen or business tools to where it's like, 
you know, this is like in their blood, the farming practice. And it's like, this is what is this. And like, I like what Ray said, that that context of how they farm has kind of become them. So it's like, man, you're not just pivoting a business. You're not just pivoting a business. You're pivoting this whole person. I mean, this whole person has to change. So it's like, whoop. I mean, you know, that's that's tricky. That's a lot. It's hard. There's no question. So I don't think anybody can be successful at farming if they don't live it. Like, I think that's yeah. what makes farming so unique in this industry. Is so unique is that it's a lifestyle. We live it. You know, one point I want to bring out, guys. Let's uh, here. One of the things we need to realize where we're at nationally and globally in this movement. We're still in the early innovator stage. We're less than one to one percent of that. Until we reach thirteen percent, we all know then the majority of the mass will will go over. And in the in the true reality, guys, we we farm and ranch. I have my own ranch. I lose sheep all the time. Ranching and farming is one of the most difficult things on the planet. It, you're dealing with a dynamic ecosystem. And here's what we're telling farmers, like, guys, look, the natural system sets the rules. If you follow the rules and obey her and mimic her, you don't have to work so hard. You don't have to spend so much. You can have a better life. You'll have more life in your soil. But if you work against the natural system, you're going to spend more. It's going to cost you more. You're going against the natural system. We all know that the principles that God created this planet, this is the way it works. This is the way it flows. You either work with it or work against it. The decision is yours. But here's the thing that we've never done before, Kevin, and I wish I would have been taught in college. I wish one of my professors said, Ray, look, focus, like my wife talks to me, look. She says, mimic nature, mimic me. It's pretty simple. I said, look at the architecture. That's why when I taught Mitchell, Look at the shovel. I had a big organic farmer in California. He, he got bristled up. It, like you said, Kevin, got this pride. Look, we're all human. We get that pride. None of us want to be wrong. But he said, look, I'm a good organic farmer. And I said, you are. But I was trying to tell him, I said, you're using the wrong plant to build carbon. And he got real pissy with me. And I said, look. So I grabbed the shovel, walked right there. And I said, okay, this is nature. Dark, dark black soil. This is your organic regenerative, like you call yourselves regenerative. It's 10 shades lighter and it's almost pale. I said, nature, you. You're not doing as good as you think you do. Last statement. Guys, I've had to be humbled. If you are not in, in this to be regenerative movement, you know what the number one ingredient is? Humility. If you are not humble to realize you don't know everything, you know hardly nothing, about the natural system, I'll just be brutally honest. I've met three or four or five farmers in my whole career, traveling the whole country, that have an exceptional knowledge of the soil ecosystem. Three, three or four. I mean, they're well-grounded. They're well-read. You know what another thing I noticed about regenerative farmers? They never stop learning. They're always listening. They're always learning. But here's the thing. Farmers will spend $200,000 on a tractor but they won't come to a conference. They won't go to a school. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't feel sorry for you. I mean, let's just be brutally honest. And when the government cuts the money, because it's our money, guys, and we're running, we don't have any. We keep borrowing. We don't have that money. 
That's why Australia has been so effective. Like what Mitchell was talking about and Rick, you know what they've done? They don't have cost share. They use community. They work together. They all have that same goal. The problem is we think we're competing with each other, but we're competing with the world, guys. So it's, it's really a, a human dynamics, Evan. It's, it's very complex. So yeah. I have a question for you, Ray. You know, you talked about evolving yes, and all these things. What is your opinion on like biostimulants? Because for my research company, over 50% of the trials contracted with me were biostimulants this year. Yeah. Here's, here's you know, who changed? I, I, Rick and I have, I think, pretty much the same philosophy Rick and I are thinking, for me, I used to think, you know, plants and microbes, plants and animals do everything. That's what they want predominantly. But I have learned that when the system is so degraded, and I've been around some brilliant scientists like Dr. David Johnson, he is getting some exceptional results with um, the Johnson Sioux. These biostimulants come from the, the back end of a worm processing the protozoa and those organisms. That life inoculation of those biostim, that biosignaling wakes up organisms that have not been awakened for years. Dr. David Johnson completely changed me when he said, there's metagenomics where there's bacteria that fix nitrogen without the use of a plant, fix carbon without the use of the plant. I go, whoa, boom. He's running third year now in Arizona. He's a third year doing a pivot with Howard Buffett where they're using the biostimulant of the Johnson Sioux, just the bios, uh, the compost tea, uh, 50 units with the compost tea and chemical fertilizer. That biostimulant by itself, that compost extract that J David Johnson created is in par with five to seven bushel with no fertilizer at all and through a pivot. This is a 30 year of the research. Do you know the implications of that? Huge. Can you imagine not having to use chemical fertilizer in your operation anymore? But here's the point. It does not work if you're not doing the other principles. I'm sorry. It, it just does not work. you got to follow all the principles, not just the biostimulant. It's just a tool. This is not about tools or process. This is why I was very passionate. It's about understanding. It's always been about that. Right, Rick? Yeah. It's a systematic approach. You got you to have yep. all the pieces working. Yep. I've got a quick question for Kevin, uh, and then I'd like to come back behind your answer. How much, how much talk do you have on, on the carbon markets, Kevin, with your customer base? Oh, yeah. Yeah, nonstop. Nonstop. Okay. Tons of questions, tons of people trying to figure it out, understand, you know, okay. more, do, more questions than answers, Rick. Yeah. Do those folks realize that they're going to have to change their, their, their ways of farming to even apply and be even in a running for a carbon market? They do realize that, right? Yeah, I think most of them realize it. Most of them believe they're probably already doing, they, these are my clients now. I mean, the people that, I mean, they're pretty forward thinking and they, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they think they're doing a lot of the right practices uh, to participate in some capacity uh, okay. with the market. So let me know. The only, the only well, reason I'm asking is because, you know, these the people got to realize here, 
that there's going to be, you have to apply these principles, in my opinion, to be able to be in these carbon markets. So that's going to mean cover crops. That's going to mean reduced tillage, changing the way you till, uh, changing the way you farm. So again, Kevin, I'm just going back to that. um, You know, I see a, you are a very creative individual and you maybe have a business opportunity here to create a, a wing or a department that is going to train these folks how to get to this next level. I think it would, I think it, it'll be, it could be huge. Yep. And folks like Mitchell, I mean, data's the thing here. If you don't know how to collect data, it's not only how you collect the data, we all collect it. It's what do you do with that data? Google collects data from us every second of the day, but they're yep. masters of turning that back onto us. Mitchell's got a platform <laughs> there that does all that. And there's so many things out there that, you take little pieces from 25 different people and you've got a pretty good plan. So, yeah, I, I, I just, tell you, Rick, I, uh, I like to, you know, try to provide perspective. I had a buddy and his old man and his grandpa, they owned a bunch of gas stations in around Kansas City. And then the kid that's my age inherited them. And, you know, and he kept doing things same way and said, and I told Jordan, I'm like, I just wonder what's going through his head. You know, what, what is he thinking right now? How's he going to transition and leave that to his kids or grandkids? What, what, I don't know. And I always reference that being very similar to a farm. I feel like coming up, you know, I feel like we're in this really in this period where it's going to really swing hard. Like we're talking about uh, with the climate change talk and the pressure from climate change and the pressure in Washington and the shift and change. You know, you're sitting here, you own a bunch of gas stations and you want to leave them to your kids. Well, I mean, what the hell do you do? I mean, you put in electric charge, you know, there's just a lot of questions to be asked. And I think you kind of have to realize that if you're a farmer and then seek that information out, like Ray says, be on a quest. But this is what's important, Kevin, is you got these folks on this panel. We're talking about this. Get this in front of your customer base. And okay, they're not going to switch tomorrow, but they're going to start talking about it. And yeah. that, that gets the ball rolling. I agree. I agree. Uh, one thing I want to say real quick to Melissa. Melissa, I didn't answer your question completely, but I don't, a majority of them do not work because uh, uh, the ones that I've seen work are real life. I mean, when David Johnson gets that biostimulant, he puts it in the field right away. And so you're inoculating life and changing the system with these organisms. So I just want to make that clear. I don't want people in the audience thinking, oh, they're the magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. The magic bullet is you have to think and manage. One of the the things I want to say, guys, one of the things is that people don't realize freedom is hard work. It's not free. And, and, And a lot of people are not willing to sacrifice and to really, really work hard to think and manage. And, and I'm telling you, you're right, Kevin. This, this system is not for everybody. It is not. I do not recommend it. In fact, I said, look, if you're going to do this half-hearted, I'd rather you just continue to your own system because you're going to go to the neighbor and blast it, and you're going you're gonna to cause more harm. I, I'd say continue to be a tenant farmer. Continue to be a tenant farmer. Work for the government. Work for the chemical companies. Work for the equipment company. Knock yourself out. I do not want you to do this if you're going to play. Be serious 
and be a student. And so that's what I tell people, be serious. Yeah, I want to come behind that with something. Um, I am so serious about what we're doing here that I am now going to, I'm heading into year four of no multiple crop insurance. I took no CFAP uh, subsidy payments in 2020. And um, I have eliminated all government programs, no PLC, ARC, nothing. That is how committed I am to this system. And that is, is the, the mindset that you have to have to make yourself better each and every day. And I know we all try to do that. I know that. But this is, this, and like you said, Kevin, this is for real. This is, this is a monopoly money we're playing with. This is real money. Real stress, real, real everything. And again, please don't go out and just turn the whole farm upside down tomorrow and do this. But let's get our toe in the water and let's get the right help, the right information. I mean, Mitchell's seen a lot of farms that have tried things and it just blows up in their face. I'm never coming back to this again. Why did I ever listen to those crazy people? That's what we have to get away from, that kind of a, of, a, of a negativity that turns everybody off. Yeah, I totally agree, Ray. And, and another thing, too, Kevin, you know what people want is a prescription. Everybody wants a prescription. It's, uh, doctor, tell me what to do. Give me a pill. Oh, by the way, I shouldn't know anything about my body. I, shouldn't, I should just trust you. We become a very a society that doesn't think critically. We don't question everything. I question everything now. I spent eight years in college and they taught me this way and I realized it was wrong. So I question everything. You got to do critical thinking. You got to think. And like I said, regenerative agriculture is darn hard work. You have to be a thinker and a better manager. Yeah, I tell people, Ray, the same thing. They call me all the time. Yeah, hey, people said you're the guy we didn't call. Tell us how to market our crop. You know, where, where are we marketing? I said, look, if you're looking for a pain pill or a prescription for a pain medicine, that I'm not it. You got to go find someone else. There's there's a lot of people in this industry that'll do that. I said, no, that's not what I do. So you got to, I just challenge you to think. And then you've got to come up with your own plans and programs and that are right for you and your operation and your family. That's it. I, you know, that's, that's what has to happen. And you guys are saying the same thing. I mean, everyone's going to have to come up with the best uh, program and plan for them. So, yeah, it's awesome. We Good certainly stuff. need more people like Mitchell. I'll tell you that. Um, because a tailor approach is what's going to do it every single time. And, and that's why blanket approaches like some of the ones embraced by some of the, um, carbon credit brokers out there of uh, just simply do whatever cover crop you want and do as much no-till as you want. As long as you can do it, you're fine. Um, it's just, it has, it has dangers associated with it and it has lack of credibility. So um, it's almost like, you know, every farmer out there uh, relies to a certain extent on some kind of uh, agronomic advice. It's almost like we should get all these agronomic advisors and send them back to school. And but it, but it's just building the community around that, though, because all I did in helping these farmers to work through this process is call on guys like Rick and Adam Chapel down south and, and Russell Hedrick out in North Carolina. And these guys that are the local people that I can call on to say, hey, 
I understand the principles and I understand what I've done on my farm, but how do I tweak this for their context and, and you being bringing in the resources and then we can continue to scale that. And obviously we're trying to do the digital tools and stuff to be able to scale it, but just building the resources in the community around that to know who to call on to get the right advice, knowing that it's not one size fits all what works for me. Um, and what works for me in one year might not work the same the next year. And, and, um, and you have to continue to learn uh, to raise point. Every year is going to be different. we got to continue to learn. And there's things that this year, you know, we're, we're pretty deep into this and I think we're learning pretty well, but there's things that we did this year that didn't work. And there's other things that went amazingly well. And we didn't, we went into it, not quite sure if it was going to work and it worked tremendously well. So it's continuing to uh, continuing to figure this out, learn and, and build community. And also understanding, I think kind of my last point on some of that is, that we have to understand that we can't go and try to sell the unsellable people will come when they want to come. And, and I think that's where to, to raise point, you've got to, you have to be willing to commit. And if you're not going to be full committed, it's not going to, it's not going to work. You're for sure going to fail. If you are going into it saying this is going to fail. Like, so we have to take the people that want to learn that want to be part of the community that want to contribute to the community and want to be able to give back to their soil and give, um, you know, to better shepherd uh, what we've got here. So, um, and, and there's only some people that are ready for that. The pain of staying the same right now, isn't that terrible bad? Corn's, you know, prices are pretty good. And yeah, I can cut some stuff and there's new tech that, you know, I can still make it. Uh, that 20 bucks an acre, Ray, is, it's better than negative 20. But it's the pain of staying the same versus the pain of change, I think is going to continue to uh, be a moving target over the coming years. Yeah, and, I, and and Kevin, I want to throw something else out here. Um, you know, where we're headed, we're going toward organic. So we're in a whole different, a whole different marketplace, higher, higher numbers. So the last thing we we've got to be careful here is that you're not going to save the farm. Okay. If you're in, if you're headed down, if you're rolling over and you're going the wrong way. You're not going to start all of a sudden go down the Regenerative Road and save the farm. So we got to be careful here. Again, context, like Ray just stresses here. You know, we every time that phone rings, I got to be, I got to ask 25 questions to, to answer the one guy's question to me because I got to make sure I'm getting all the, the story here. And, and that's the same thing that that everyone else has to worry about. And Again, there is no one size fits all. It's going to be different for region to region and climate zone to climate zone. But I will guarantee you that all six principles work around the world, just different ways they're being used. So what would be awesome, Kevin, would be to get 20% of your customer base to try something different. That would be a success right there. 20% of your acres that you touch. Yeah, hell, I mean, yeah, we could change the world with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we could do some damage there for sure. Um, you know, Ty, we probably ought to wrap things up and be respectful of time. But, you know, I what I just find so amazing is I'm on calls, like I said, all the time with because of my trading and investing. So we're on with top CEOs of some big companies, you know, whether it's cloud computing and you want to talk about Snowflake just had a big move this week and 
uh, or Roblox with uh, in their sphere or something. But you guys on this call are all talking the exact same thing. Uh, when you talk uh, about, you don't use the same terms, but see how I got started is I went to Wall Street and I went to Chicago as a trader. Uh, by chance, hell, they hired me, you know, because I was big and tall. But I'd come back home to where the guys would be playing dominoes or something in the morning, the farmers, and they'd say, okay, smarty pants, you know, explain some of this lingo to me in terms. And so the terms I hear are the exact same things that we're saying on these conference calls with some of these other big, big tech companies. Uh, and, you, and, and Mitchell talking about a community and sharing. And I always said one of the big problems or a big problem in agriculture was that we built the highest fences. We've built the tallest walls and highest fences, whether it was because of through the chemical companies or the other companies brand loyalties and how they had the farmer dealer programs in place to where those farmer dealer programs created a loyalty within the family that whatever the, whatever the case may be. And you really felt like, like Ray said, that you were competing against your neighbor. That, that mentality got built a lot. And now on all these new calls, everyone from Tesla to Snowflake to everyone else is talking about open sourcing or open source sharing. And that's just a fancy term for what Mitchell said, creating a community where everyone can share in some of the data and some of the research and some of the findings. And we continue to help each other and continue to grow and build off of those things. And yeah. that's all happening now with these companies on the tech side that are just really smoking hot and that are really doing some big things. And I find it interesting that you guys are talking the exact same lingo and each one of you are a CEO of your own business and your own farm and your own ranch. And it's interesting to hear when I'm on calls with folks that are on this side, you're, you're talking the same thing that they're all talking. So I, uh, I know you're on the right path. I mean, I know you guys are, uh, are where we all need to head and try to work in that direction. So like I said, I commend you and hats off for being pioneers and taking risk uh, and, and trying to blaze a trail where no one's uh, blazed them much. And I think we, we, we all need to pay attention and do what we can to uh, be more open and, and tear down some of these walls and see what we can do. Well, Todd, Jordan, and, and Kevin, thank you for letting me, letting me be part of this. This, this was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, this has been great. And, uh, a lot of uh, some kumbaya amongst us, but I think I think that's good and, and showcases the area that this has to you know continue to go in, in these conversations. Um, so looking forward to the next one. But yeah, I was supposed to be out helping Dad pick beans. I got plant cover crop here. I was supposed to be out there twenty minutes ago, so I got to go. <laughs> right on. Thank you, Mitchell. Appreciate Thanks. Appreciate it. Guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so yeah. much, guys. Everyone, Appreciate thank you. It. For the invitation again.